Um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Wendy Post, an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, who's going to talk to us about predicting and preventing cardiovascular disease in patients with HIV. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, I'm a preventive cardiologist, so I see a lot of patients with risk factors for heart disease. And what I wanted to do today was to review with you some of the established guidelines and some of the newer data about how we predict and prevent cardiovascular disease. I think you're all very familiar with data such as these that show that now with the use of heart or continuous antiretroviral therapy, combination antiretroviral therapy, um, HIV has become a chronic disease. And by far, the leading cause of death in patients with um, HIV that are non-HIV related is cardiovascular disease. So what are the potential mechanisms where our patients with HIV might be at increased risk for cardiovascular disease? Well, we know from a variety of different databases that patients with HIV have a high prevalence of traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors, especially smoking. We also know that the treatment of HIV with antiretroviral therapy leads to a number of metabolic abnormalities, including insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and fat redistribution, and hypertension. And there's also a lot of interest now in HIV viral infection itself and its potential effects on leading to cardiovascular disease, primarily through the inflammatory response. So I was asked to not go over in great detail all the data about HIV and cardiovascular risk, but to focus more on what we now know as preventive cardiologists about how to reduce risk. So I'm mostly going to talk about reducing risk in the general population. Um, but I just wanted to summarize what I often show a number of slides about, which are that observational studies suggest an increased risk for coronary heart disease associated with HIV infection and with um, heart, especially um, uh, uh, observational studies. But not all studies show consistent results. So there are a lot of limitations to the study designs in some of the observational studies, including small sample sizes or inadequate controls. So I don't think that the jury is out that there is definitely um, an increased risk. But the uh, majority of studies do show an increased risk associated with HIV and antiretroviral therapy. So the most interesting data recently has been from the SMART study, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, where over 5,000 HIV-infected patients were randomized to either continuous therapy or treatment interruption. And the hypothesis was that treatment interruption would actually reduce the risk of events because of the potential side effects of antiretroviral therapy. But actually, the um, treatment interruption was associated with an increased risk for death from any cause with a hazard ratio of 1.8, major cardiovascular, renal, or hepatic disease with a hazard ratio of 1.9, and those were all highly statistically significant. But also, if you specifically look at fatal or non-fatal cardiovascular disease, the hazard ratio was 1.6, or a 60% increase. So this study suggested that the viral infection itself may be leading to um, an increased risk for cardiovascular disease, which is then suppressed by the use of antiretroviral therapy. 
And these data um, suggest that specifically um, elevated levels of IL-6 and D-dimer are especially associated with an increased risk for mortality. And these data from the SMART study um, included a case control study where 85 cases and 170 match controls had uh, specimens measured for CRP, IL-6, and D-dimer. And what they found was that in the drug conservation group, there was a 30% increase in IL-6 and a 16% increase in D-dimer. But in the viral suppression group, those um, increases were minimal, if any. Again, suggesting that antiretroviral therapy and viral suppression can help to decrease inflammation and potentially um, decrease the risk for cardiovascular events. Notice that this slide does not have cardiovascular events on it. It has all-cause mortality. There was an abstract that had been presented about cardiovascular events, but that has not yet been published. And I think the issue is that the sample size for cardiovascular events was relatively small. And so the ability to specifically say the risk for cardiovascular events related to these elevated inflammatory markers is somewhat limited. Um, but it is interesting also that the increases in IL-6 and D-dimer in the drug conservation group were specifically related to HIV RNA levels at one month. So if your patients with, cardiovascular, with HIV are at increased risk, what, what can we do to decrease that risk? So I'm primarily going to talk to you about what we do for primary prevention in the general population. And at our uh, preventive cardiology center at Hopkins, which we call the Chicaroni Center, we use the ABCs of heart disease risk management. It just makes it easier to remember. So the A stands for aspirin when indicated. The B is blood pressure control. C is cholesterol management and cigarette smoking cessation. D is diabetes and prediabetes or impaired fasting glucose management, and E is for exercise. So most of you in the audience are acting as the primary care physician for your patients. And so, of course, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the general population as well. And so it's um, real important that we try to do everything we can to minimize this risk, and there's been significant advances over the past couple of decades in preventing cardiovascular disease due to these preventive therapies. And it's interesting to note that if you look at databases of HIV patients, that not surprisingly, the coronary heart disease risk factors that we use in the general population also predict cardiovascular disease events in HIV, including advancing age, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and low HDL cholesterol. So in the workshop this afternoon, I know a number of you are signed up for that, we'll talk a little bit more about calculating the Framingham risk score. And generally, this is the recommendation that we uh, assess all adults for their coronary heart disease risk by calculating the Framingham risk score. And it looks complicated, but it actually is pretty easy. And it involves calculating a certain number of points based on age, total cholesterol, HDL, systolic blood pressure, smoking status, you add up the sum of the points and then you get the estimated 10-year risk of a myocardial infarction or coronary heart disease death. And there are different calculations for men than there are for women. But we have to realize that this calculation is just a 10-year risk. So if you're seeing a 35-year-old woman or a 45-year-old woman, the likelihood that she's going to have an event in the next 10 years is very low. Women tend to get heart disease around 10 years later than men, mostly in their postmenopausal years. 
So there's been interest in not just looking at this 10-year risk, but looking at lifetime risk. And these are data also from Framingham looking at um, the risk of having a um, cardiovascular event in an asymptomatic 50-year-old man or woman who at age 50 does not have any heart disease, and then during the following years you can see what the risk is if they have optimal risk factors as defined here for a woman, 8%, for a man, 5%, so pretty low risk. Fact, risk. But if you have major risk factors, at least two major risk factors for a woman at age 50, the lifetime risk of developing heart disease is 50%, and for men is 69%. So there's been some interest in how we might differently assess women than men, and these guidelines actually were just uh, published in circulation. And it says that several lines of evidence support the focus of women's guidelines on long-term risk for CVD rather than solely on 10-year risk. First, observation on clinical trial indicate that women's risk for stroke and heart failure through middle and older age typically exceed that risk for coronary heart disease, in contrast to the pattern observed in men for whom CHD risk increases earlier, earliest. So the Framingham risk score is calculating MI and coronary heart disease death. So it doesn't include what we call total coronary heart disease or cardiovascular disease events, which in would include stroke and congestive heart failure. So these new women's guidelines are suggesting that for women, instead of using the Framingham risk score, we might use a modified Framingham risk score, which includes the risk for CVA and CHF. So it says the focus of the current NCP ATP3 guidelines on 10-year CHD risk may substantially underestimate clinically relevant overall CVD risk and therefore tends to preclude the warranted intensive preventive measures for most high-risk women. So uh, the, these women's guidelines now suggest a new cut point for defining high risk at 10% 10-year risk for all CVD, not just CHD risk alone. So when we see a patient at increased risk for heart disease, the mainstay of therapy has been statin medication. And this is because the overwhelming um, evidence of the efficacy of treatment with statins. And this is a slide that shows in primary prevention and in secondary prevention studies that have shown that statins reduce the likelihood of having a myocardial infarction by approximately 30 to 40 percent. And so this is probably the most important slide, which is the current LDL targets. And so the most effective way to reduce risk in your patients using traditional risk factors is to try to get their LDL cholesterol to goal. So the recommendations are to first assess risk. So those who are lower risk have zero to one risk factors, and their LDL goal might be less than 160. But the patients we're most concerned about are those who have at least two risk factors. And these patients, um, if they have a 10-year calculate Framingham risk less than 10%, which is considered low risk, they're sort of low risk within the moderate risk category, then their goal LDL is 130. But if you have at least two risk factors and your calculated Framingham risk score is 10 to 20%, what we consider intermediate risk, then the LDL goal is less than 130 with an optional goal of less than 100. 
And our highest risk patients are the patients who already have coronary heart disease, or what we call a coronary heart disease risk equivalent, including diabetes. So our patients with diabetes go into the highest risk category and get treated most aggressively. Patients who have had carotid endarterectomy or have peripheral vascular disease or aortic aneurysm would be in the same category. Or if when you calculate the Framingham risk score, the score comes out to greater than 20%, then even though that person doesn't have yet manifest coronary heart disease, they'd be put in the highest uh, risk category, and their LDL goal is less than 100 with an optional goal of less than 70. So many of us put someone on a statin but then don't do the next step, which is to make sure that they actually reach their goal. Because newer studies show that um, getting to a lower LDL target is more effective than getting to a moderate LDL target. And sometimes, of course, we're limited by what our insurance companies will pay for because, of course, the newer drugs are more potent than the, um, than the uh, generic drugs. And something we see commonly in patients with HIV is hypertriglyceridemia. There's actually a brand new guideline that was just um, published in circulation. The reference is here. And it suggests the following new designations. Optimal fasting triglyceride level defined as 100 as a parameter of metabolic health. Non-fasting triglyceride levels can be used to screen for those with high fasting triglyceride levels with a normal non-fasting less than 200. So you can see here the timeline. Um, showing that we become more aggressive, not just with triglycerides, but with all of our preventive guidelines about um, what's considered desirable had been 250, 200, 150. Now it's going to be um, less than 100. And of course, um, we worry about pancreatitis when we have triglycerides that are greater than 500. So our guidelines say that our first target of therapy is LDL cholesterol. So if you see someone with elevated triglycerides, and also elevated LDL, they're not at their LDL goal, your first goal is to treat the LDL, preferably with a statin. And then once you reach the LDL target, then often we calculate the non-HDL um, to consider whether additional therapy is needed. But we concentrate on the triglycerides when the triglycerides are greater than 150 to prevent pancreatitis. Um, and use primarily lifestyle modification to treat hypertriglyceridemia um, at levels less than that. And this is because um, studies using fibrates and niacin have been somewhat disappointing, um, at least recent studies. And this is the most recent one. We were all very enthusiastic about the combination of using a statin and uh, extended release niacin to prevent heart disease. This is not primary prevention, but this is in patients who have vascular disease. This study hasn't been published yet. It was just terminated by the Data Safety Monitoring Board. It was an NIH-funded study where over 3,000 men and women with vascular disease who had low HDL and high triglycerides with an LDL less than 180 were then um, randomized to simvastatin versus simvastatin plus extended release niacin. The primary endpoint was coronary heart disease death, MI, stroke, or high-risk acute coronary syndrome hospitalization. So uh, the mean age was 64. There were a lot of diabetics, hypertensives, people with the metabolic syndrome. Majority had coronary artery disease, and most of them were on statins at, therapy, at, at entry. The important thing about this study is that the mean baseline LDL before they were randomized to the extended release niacin or not was 71. So this is a very well-treated group of people with vascular disease who were on statin therapy at goal LDL cholesterol. And once you're at goal, 
the mean HDL was 34 and the triglycerides were 161. But the study was stopped because there was actually no difference in the primary outcome, even though extended release niacin led to increases in HDL, decreases in triglycerides. The hazard ratio was 1.05. There were a similar number of events in both groups. But if you look at the subgroup of strokes, there were 28 strokes in the niacin group and 12 strokes in the control group. So the trend was in the opposite direction of what we had hypothesized, and they uh, decided to terminate the study early because they felt that there was no chance that it was going to lead to a reduced risk for myocardial infarction. So that's led to uh, significantly decreased enthusiasm for using combination of statin and extended release niacin as we had been um, using previously. So again, getting back to my primary point, which is that statins really should be the mainstay of therapy um, in addition, of course, to lifestyle therapy. Uh, and, um, and also, you know, considering the low HDL and high triglycerides as predictors of risk, because they are very potent predictors, but focusing primarily on lifestyle modification to um, modify those risks, except when the triglycerides are significantly elevated. So the stroke may be a random chance. The results cannot be extrapolated to other patient populations where they don't have um, well-treated LDL. Probably would not stop niacin in patients already receiving it and tolerating it well, potentially, but less likely to start patients with well-controlled LDL on niacin. So I think our biggest problem in the United States has been, and many develop, uh, developed countries, is the supersizing of, uh, of America. And so I always like this slide showing that this year, Americans will spend more money on fast food than higher education. So as you know, there is an epidemic of obesity in our country as shown on this slide, which shows the prevalence of um, a BMI greater than 30. And you can see here the map of the United States in 1990, 1999, and 2009, with a high prevalence of states that have greater than 30% prevalence of um, obesity. So with this epidemic of obesity has become an epidemic of diabetes and the metabolic syndrome. And unfortunately, this is affecting our children as well. And there's great concern that the improvements that we've seen over the years in reduction in incidence of coronary heart disease death may reverse with um, these adverse trends in obesity and the metabolic syndrome. So how do we diagnose the metabolic syndrome? To diagnose this, you need to have at least three of these five criteria. This is an old slide. I apologize. I just realized. Fasting glucose at least 100, not 110. Triglycerides at least 150. Blood pressure at least 130 over 85. Low HDL cholesterol, which in women is less than 50 and men less than 40 and central obesity, um, defined as waist circumference greater than 35 inches in women and 40 inches in men. So if your patients have at least three of these components, then they're considered to have the metabolic syndrome, and they're at significantly increased for cardio risk for cardiovascular disease events. In addition to controlling their specific risk factors with uh, medical therapy, um, you want to emphasize lifestyle modification. And when this is available to you to have patients, especially with diabetes, meet with a nutritionist um, or with a nurse practitioner who can spend specific targeted time uh, talking about strategies for weight management and lifestyle modification. So the optimal BMI goal is less than 25. And we generally recommend a 10% weight reduction within the first year. And that reduction has been shown to significantly um, alter risk for uh, cardiovascular disease by modifying um, uh, risk factors. 
And so there are recommendations by the AHA Nutrition Committee for dietary uh, guidelines is to balance caloric intake and physical activity to achieve or maintain a healthy body weight. Consume a diet rich in fruits and vegetables, and I think this is key. And what I tell my patients is, especially at dinner, if you're hopefully cooking dinner at home, your plate should be at least half vegetables. You want to limit the carbohydrates, limit the you know, main course protein, and really have um, a tremendous um, increase in what most of our patients are currently consuming in terms of fruits and vegetables. You want to consume whole grain, high fiber foods, and fish, especially oil fish, at least twice a week. Limit the intake of saturated fats, choosing lean meat and vegetable alternatives, choosing fat-free, skim, uh, low-dairy, uh, low-fat dairy products, and minimizing the intakes of partially hydrogenated fats. We want to minimize intake of beverages and foods with added sugar, and sometimes we forget to ask our patients what they're drinking. And some of our patients are drinking gallons of soda that's not diet soda. I see somebody shaking their head. Or milk. I had this one patient who was telling me he was considering bariatric surgery, and then he met with a nutritionist who recognized he was drinking like a gallon of milk every day. And so um, it's really helpful to have your patients write down exactly what they're eating and bring it to you or to a nutritionist. And a diet that I often recommend is the um, Weight Watchers diet, which is a good way for patients to learn um, the importance of uh, limiting portion sizes, keeping track of what you're eating, and eating a healthy, balanced diet. Um, choose and prepare foods with little or no salt. This is especially important for patients with hypertension. And if alcohol is consumed, do so in moderation. And this is generally considered one drink a day for women and potentially two drinks a day for men. And the difference is primarily related to body size. Exercise and physical activity is key. A minimum of 30 to 60 minutes at least five days a week. We tell patients to try to exercise most days of the week. Um, as it says here, optimal is seven days of the week. And we recommend aerobic exercise, but resistance training is helpful as well in terms of increasing physical fitness and um, resting metabolic rate. As I mentioned, patients with diabetes are considered a cardiovascular disease risk equivalent because their risk is similar to someone without diabetes who's already had a myocardial infarction. So we put these patients in the highest risk category and they receive our most aggressive preventive strategies. In terms of hypertension, um, in the last few years, we've developed this uh, new classification called prehypertension, which is those who have a blood pressure of 120 to 139 over 80 to 89. Those patients primarily are treated with lifestyle modification unless they have diabetes or um, chronic kidney disease. But our patients with hypertension, um, we, uh, we generally treat with medical therapy and often will need at least two drugs um, to treat people with stage 2 hypertension. And uh, there are compelling indications for specific therapies. Um, I think uh, most of us now are trying to use generics, including uh, HCTZ um, or amlodipine, which are, uh, and ACE inhibitors, which are uh, the mainstay of therapy, which can be, um, uh, we can now use uh, uh, generics, which help our patients to minimize cost and also angiotensin receptor blockers. But what about aspirin? Well, I always like this slide, to prevent a heart attack, take one aspirin a day, take it out for a jog, then take it to the gym, then take it for a bike ride. Um, and that's just to show, you know, our patients want us to give them a magic pill. Many of them don't want to do the lifestyle things that we recommend. There really is no magic pill, and that if we get our patients to exercise and follow a healthy diet, then, you know, if they have the metabolic syndrome with multiple adverse, you know, risk factors, then um, sometimes lifestyle modification can improve all of them. 
Um, but the data about aspirin is kind of confusing. I mean, the Physicians Health Study, which is an old study years ago, only included male physicians, um, randomized men uh, to 325 milligrams every other day, and found pretty significant dramatic reductions in the risk for myocardial infarction. But notice, no risk in reduction for stroke. So then, you know, we said, well, is it going to be the same for women? You know, women aren't really exactly the same as men. So this study was published in the last couple of years, which randomized women to aspirin 100 milligrams every other day or a placebo. And actually, the primary endpoint was that there was no difference. Actually, what they found was that in women above the age of 65, there was a reduction, but not in women less than 65. Um, and so here's a meta-analysis which shows that there's an odds ratio less than one is considered a reduction, that for women there's a reduction in stroke. So the subgroup analysis within the women's um, health study showed that women who took aspirin had a redu reduced risk for stroke, but not a reduced risk for myocardial infarction. See, that's at one. Whereas for men, there's a reduction in the risk for myocardial infarction, but not a reduction in the risk for stroke. So what are the recommendations? Well, these women's guidelines say aspirin, 81 milligrams. In, the, in Europe, they often use 100. We use 81 milligrams for women above the age of 65. Um, and aspirin in, in at-risk women, so women with risk factors for ischemic stroke prevention, because I mentioned that the women's health study showed reduction in risk for stroke. But um, this is a, a level of evidence, uh, I mean, um, uh, indication is three for uh, women at optimal risk, which means that you should not use aspirin for primary prevention in women who don't have risk factors and are less than 65 years of age. And in men, we still just have these old guidelines, which basically say that you can consider using aspirin in people who are at intermediate risk, which is a 10-year risk for coronary heart disease based on the Framingham risk score of at least 10%. In other words, somebody who has a couple of risk factors for heart disease, you might consider giving them aspirin. Well, what about coronary calcification? Um, I think you're all familiar with uh, uh, these types of studies where we look at um, calcium in the heart arteries, and calcium is an integral component of atherosclerotic plaque. This is a cross-section through a heart of a patient who has severe coronary artery calcification. And we know that people with increased coronary calcification are at increased risk for events. Well, why might that be important? Well, we know that atherosclerosis be begins early and can be detected prior to an event, and that most myocardial infarctions occur at sites where there was previously less than 40% stenosis with superimposed plaque rupture and thrombus formation. So stress tests only detect flow-limiting disease or blockages and don't necessarily detect people who have diffuse atherosclerosis that's not yet flow-limiting. So we sometimes use coronary calcification to determine who we should target for what we consider aggressive primary prevention. And that's because a number of studies, including MESA, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, show that there's a very strong association between coronary calcification and the risk for having a myocardial infarction. And this is um, incremental risk on top of traditional risk factors. So we don't yet have data in HIV about coronary calcium predicting risk. And so it's a little unclear, you know, how any of these guidelines translate exactly to HIV patients who may be different, just like men are different than women. Um, but in the absence of evidence, um, I think that, you know, with coronary calcium scanning, uh, we really just do it in people where it's going to potentially change our management. So I don't recommend that all patients with HIV get coronary artery calcium scanning since we don't yet know whether the 
risk um, associated with coronary calcium is same in an HIV population. So if a patient is low risk, you don't need to do any further testing or high risk because we're going to give them intensive preventive measures. But if they're at intermediate risk or what in my mind is I'm not sure exactly how aggressively to treat them is when I sometimes consider doing additional testing. Um, what about CRP? Well, in the general population, we know that um, CRP is strongly associated with risk for events in many studies, but not all studies. It's strongly associated with other traditional risk factors for heart disease, especially um, related to the metabolic syndrome. And it's a measure of inflammation, and in HIV, predicts total mortality. So in in the general population, a study was performed to determine whether measuring CRP can be used to determine who might benefit from statin therapy. And in the Jupiter study, people without prior heart disease who had an LDL less than 130, so no specific indication for statin therapy, and an elevated CRP greater than 2, were randomized to receive a statin, 20 milligrams versus placebo. And what they found was a very dramatic 44% reduction in the primary outcome of myocardial infarction, stroke, unstable angina, and cardiovascular disease death. So, you know, the problem with this study is that you could potentially look at whether people with low CRP also benefit from statin therapy. So there wasn't that comparator arm. But basically, you know, it's saying that um, elevated CRP may be potentially a way to identify people at increased risk who would benefit from statins. But in our HIV population, as I mentioned, there's a very high prevalence of smoking, which is one of our most potent predictors of risk for cardiovascular disease. And although it's certainly not easy to get our patients to stop smoking, there are a lot of very good medical therapies that we can now use in addition to behavioral therapy to try to modify that risk. So again, the ABCs of heart disease management is consider aspirin, blood pressure control, cholesterol management is key, cigarette smoking cessation, diabetes and prediabetes management, especially with um, risk factor modification, and exercise. So the key points are that HIV infection may be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. I don't yet think that we want to consider HIV patients as having a cardiovascular disease risk equivalent like our diabetic patients do. Um, but we certainly want to make sure that we screen for cardiovascular disease risk factors and um, treat, especially according to um, general guidelines, to at least reach those goals. And we know that in the general population that most of our patients don't even re reach the recommended um, targets in the national guidelines. So I think we want at least start with that until we have additional data about how treatment might be different among HIV versus the general population. We know that HIV-infected persons carry a high burden of traditional risk factors, and traditional risk factors are also the major determinants of CHD risk in patients with HIV. Inflammatory and coagulation markers are associated with increased mortality and possibly CVD in HIV. There's a potential role for HIV treatment, antiretroviral therapy, to decrease cardiovascular disease risk with beneficial effects on immune dysfunction and inflammation, which appear to outweigh individual proatherogenic effects of antiretroviral therapy, and that comes from the data from the SMART study. So generally, I would recommend that in the absence of specific HIV randomized treatment trials, we treat CVD risk factors according to current national guidelines and emphasize the importance of smoking cessation among smokers. Further studies, however, are needed to assess the efficacy of specific interventions to prevent coronary heart disease in HIV patients. There is not enough data to support the use of inflammatory and coagulation markers or subclinical imaging for risk prediction routinely in clinical care in HIV patients. 
and no data yet to support routine use of aspirin or statins in all HIV patients beyond national guidelines. Thank you very much. Um, so I have one question. I had been told or read somewhere that there was there were new recommendations that were different between African American men and white men. Is that, but for aspirin, is that not for aspirin? You know, I'm not really familiar with that, okay. but it's certainly. Our endocrinologist is telling me about it, and I just didn't know anything about it. Um, one question we have is around triglycerides, and is elevated triglycerides itself a risk factor for heart disease? So that is a complicated um, question and answer. So triglycerides are very strongly associated with other components of the metabolic syndrome. So people with high triglycerides tend to have low HDL. They tend to have um, insulin resistance and abdominal obesity. Um, so it's often hard to tease out specifically the effects of triglycerides. But most studies show that people with hypertriglyceridemia are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease events. Um, and so do we know that when you take an antiretroviral therapy that increases triglycerides, that that mechanism of increasing triglycerides increased risks? I think that, you know, in general, we, we believe that hypertriglyceridemia is associated with uh, risk. But what I was trying to emphasize is that treatment of hypertriglyceridemia, which, um, you know, we've tried with multiple different randomized trials in the general population, hasn't been nearly as successful as treatment of LDL cholesterol, primarily with statin therapy. So if you have a patient who has high triglycerides and also has high LDL cholesterol, then I would start with a statin, unless the triglycerides are at a level where the patient is at increased risk for pancreatitis, because the majority of the evidence for reducing risk is to reduce risk through um, lowering LDL through statin therapy. And statins will also somewhat decrease triglycerides as well. Is there any evidence, though, that by, by um, reducing triglycerides, you decrease the, any of these risks related to the metabolic syndrome? I mean, other than pancreatitis. Any right. And so, you know, randomized trials of fibrates have been largely negative. Um, so, you know, basically what I'm saying is that we don't have as good evidence that treating triglycerides is going to reduce risk as we do for treating LDL. So if you do see someone with high triglycerides, um, you know, you want to assess the LDL and treat the LDL first. My name is Corinne. I'm a physician assistant in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I just had two comments about the lifestyle modifications, barriers, if you will, that we run into frequently. The first is that our patients tend to prefer to be chubby, okay? <laughs> if I could bait all my patients with insure, I would be a millionaire, and they would be the most compliant patients in the world. They feel that if they lose weight, that they appear to be ill, and their friends will somehow magically assume that the cause is HIV. So we have a big barrier in trying to entice people to lose weight because they come in, you know, with... BMIs of 35 and they want insure because they lost two pounds when they weighed in. The second barrier that we find is that our patients don't live in great neighborhoods. They are not able to go out and exercise in their neighborhood or walk through a park um, without being concerned about their safety and they feel very overwhelmed by the price of health food. So we've tried to um, more empower them with small fixes that are covered by food stamps and things like that. But I think, 
you know, it's easy for us to say lifestyle modifications, they do work, and I'm a proponent of them, but our patients' lives are not ours, you know, and, and we have to Right, be and I completely understand that. that, and when I have, like, 30 minutes to give a talk and cover all sure. of preventive cardiology, I don't have the opportunity to give those kinds of editorial comments, and I, I there are tremendous barriers to achieving lifestyle modification, and, um, you know, there aren't any quick, easy solutions, and it sounds like you've given it a lot of thought and know some of the things that you could recommend. Of course, you could, you know, suggest that someone walk in a mall rather than in their neighborhood, um, which is helpful also when the weather isn't, isn't good. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, feeling like they want to look um, chubby, some of it has to do with the fat redistribution and the appearance of looking ill that can occur um, in HIV. And I, I don't have any easy solution for you except that the emphasis should be on those who have multiple risk factors. So if you're seeing a young man and he has, or woman, and he has no risk factors for heart disease other than HIV, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how much you need to push, you know, the, the two-pound weight loss. But if you're seeing a 55-year-old or a 65-year-old man who has the metabolic syndrome and multiple risk factors for heart disease and a family history, then, you know, living is potentially more important than appearance. And so sometimes it's helpful to put the Framingham risk score, you know, in front of them and see what their risk is to try to motivate change. But I realize it's challenging. And there are significant um, socioeconomic disparities and racial ethnic disparities in access to um, even stores that ha sell healthy foods. We studied this in, in Baltimore and around Hopkins. You know, there are, there are very few stores that will even sell, you know, healthy foods. So there are tremendous barriers, and I don't have easy solutions. But all I'm doing is emphasizing that sometimes, you know, especially like with smoking cessation, if every provider tells someone they really should stop smoking, then hopefully at some point it will you know, have an imp impact as opposed to saying, well, I know this isn't going to work, so I'm not saying that's what you do. I'm no, just no, saying, no, 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 you know, no. it's just, it's hard. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's hard. I don't have an easy solution. Yeah. So we have a bunch of questions and answers, so maybe just a quick, okay. quick, quick, quick question, quick answer. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force Guidelines recommend daily aspirin for men between 45 and 79 and women between 55 and 79 when the benefits outweigh, outweigh the risks. Is this different than what you were saying today? So there's lots of different guidelines, and so what I showed were generally the guidelines that come out of the cardiology community. And so, um, you know, the newer guidelines related to the women's health study um, are specifically for uh, – related to data um, for, that came out of that study, which may have not been incorporated into the U.S. Preventive Health uh, Task Force guidelines. So in women, again, there wasn't any data that um, supported the use of aspirin in women less than 65, except for reducing the risk for stroke. It didn't reduce the risk for the overall primary outcome. So I guess it is a little bit different, um, but, you know, guidelines are just guidelines, so you can, you know, use your judgment in determining you know, who you think is most appropriate. Okay. So um, someone has been told that they should get a stress test on all people with HIV who are over 50 or when they've had HIV for more than 20 years? No. So even, you know, in the general population and people who have multiple cardiovascular disease risk factors, including diabetics, we don't generally do stress testing in people who are asymptomatic. Um, if you're uh, asking someone to start exercise and they have multiple coronary heart disease risk factors, you might consider a stress test or just have a low threshold for a stress test in anyone who even has, you know, atypical symptoms, but we certainly don't do screening stress tests 
um, on a global basis like that because the risk of a false positive and then the downstream things that occur after that are much greater than the potential benefits. Okay, and just to reemphasize that in, when you look at the Framingham risk score, you do not get a point for having HIV. Oh, absolutely. It's not um, in the Framingham risk score. Yeah, and couple, it's not. A couple yeah. questions about that, if they should add it. Right. And again, you know, this is a controversial topic. And in my opinion, at this point, I would say you should just follow the general guidelines and, um, you know, that it's not necessarily clear that um, people with HIV should be treated um, more aggressively than the general population. Okay. And um, a question about having one glass of wine a day to prevent cardiovascular disease. A lot of patients feel strongly about this. And... So as long as they don't have hypertriglyceridemia or um, diabetes and hypertension, then uh, observational studies suggest that people who drink alcohol in moderation are at decreased risk for heart disease, so that should be fine. And so two glasses a day? So again, I said that for men, it's, uh, the recommendations are up to two for women, one, and that's just due to differences in body size. Okay. Um. So what, what options do we have for treating patients who, have, who are high risk, have hyperlipidemia, and have significant liver disease? Um, so for statin therapy, you're supposed to um, stop statins if the transaminases are greater than three times the upper limit of normal. Um, I do use statins in people who have um, chronic hepatitis C as long as their transaminases are, um, are okay. So it's all, again, a matter of weighing risks versus benefits. And in somebody who has known cardiovascular disease, then, um, you know, even if they've got some liver disease, as long as it's not greater than three times the upper limit of normal, um, you could potentially use statins with careful monitoring. Um, otherwise, uh, it gets pretty complicated. Okay, and can you comment on not using simvastatin at 80 milligrams a day? So the new... Um, FDA warnings are about using 80 milligrams of simvastatin is generally not recommended because it increases the risk for rhabdomyolysis. And so um, we're really trying to limit the use of high-dose um, simvastatin, which is metabolized differently through the cytochrome P450 system than other statins. And so um, uh, we don't have that concern with pravastatin or with atorvastatin or with suvastatin in terms of using the higher doses. And if we have patients on 80, do we have to get them off of it? It would be preferable to put them on um, atorvastatin a, a, a or resuvastatin if you need high-dose statin therapy, even though that's not generic. Atorvastatin will become generic in the near future, I think, within the next 12 months or so, but it's certainly not easy at this point.